so, as many of you will know, um, last week saw the uh, sad death of uh, Sivan Andam, the director of the Institute of Race Relations, and a really key but under-recognised figure in the development of anti-racism in Britain. And uh, I was kind of rereading some of his work um, over the last few days, and this one passage really stood out at me. He said, racism never stands still. It changes shape, size, contours, purpose, function, with changes in the economy, the social structure, the system, and above all the challenges of the resistances to that system. And then um, speaking as kind of part of the post-Windrush generation of citizen migrants from Britain's colonies and former colonies, he went on to note that the racism we are faced with today is not the racism we faced 40, 50 years ago when we first came here. Um, unquote. And then he highlighted new forms of racism experienced by migrants and refugees, and he added, to fight this racism successfully, we have got to understand how it is imbricated, layered, in the processes of globalization. And at first reading, I think that comment speaks of newness and rupture, of something profoundly contemporary, of the crisis that's going on now. But what I want to emphasize today is also how it speaks about history, Racism never stands still. It contains layers, sediments left behind by long histories of the shapes and contours and functions it's taken in the past, a past which, is never, which never quite goes away. And the research that we're presenting today, which is linked to the publication of, uh, a couple of months ago of our book, Antisemitism and Islamophobia in Europe, a shared story, which is uh, published by Palgrave, and uh, also you can read as, a, as an e-book if you want, um, and some of whose contributors including Daniel Gordon and Yulia Egorova here today, is based on a long-term project that James and I have been working on with other colleagues for over a decade now, which seeks to excavate some of these buried layers and how they continue to shape the present. And when we started this project, um, and increasingly since then, it's been common to hear commentators talk about Islamophobia as the new anti-Semitism, so to just give one example, in 2010, The Guardian carried an article entitled exactly that, Islamophobia, the New Antisemitism, and concluded, in the past, there was antisemitism roiling just below the surface. Now there is Islamophobia. And this kind of story is quite a common story to hear today, I think. Um, and I think it has four problems. First, it obscures the real differences between the kind of material conditions and patterns of exclusion experienced by Jews um, in Europe, in the past and today, and uh, contemporary and historical Muslims. Second, by relegating anti-Semitism to the past, it denies the very real and often violent manifestations of racism experienced by contemporary Jews, sometimes perpetrated alongside and inextricable from violence against Muslims, sometimes perpetrated by Muslims. But thirdly, at the same time, this kind of story of Islamophobia as the new anti-Semitism obscures the long and complex, really deeply embedded history of anti-Muslim prejudice in Europe, which long predates both recent migration and um, the war on terror. And then finally, I think this kind of juxtaposition promotes a kind of zero-sum, either-or account of racism, which blocks an anti-racist politics of alliance. And that's, I guess, the spirit that we're... Um, working from today about promoting coalition and alliance. Um, so in particular, we argue that 
to understand anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in 2018, and in particular to develop strategies for combating them, we need to understand how they've worked alongside each other rather than simply comparing one to the other. And so the first fundamental argument of our book is that the figures of the Jew and the Muslim, or alongside that of the, uh, the Roma, have historically been the, the outsiders that shape what Europe is. The history of Europe as a continent couldn't be told without including both Jewish and Muslim presence, and these have touched in profound ways every single country in, in the continent. But as well as this physical presence, I think the Jew, the Muslim, have been really fundamental to the kind of conceptual landscape of Europe, the way that Europe has imagined itself. And so from the very first times when Europeans kind of mapped the world and mapped Europe, they associated Europe... Um, they kind of used the Bible to think about Europe as the land of, of uh, Noah's son Japheth and Ham in Africa, Shem, who James will talk about soon in Asia. This kind of biblical mapping of the, the Semites, the Muslims, the Jews outside Europe. So Isidore of Seville, the, the Spanish bishop who developed that kind of framework, who first kind of mapped Europe, was also the author of... Um, of uh, a, a, a book called On the Catholic Faith Against the Jews, which was an anti-Jewish polemic which claimed that Jewish presence in Christian society was necessary because of the role in the second coming of Christ, but that Judaism is inherently dishonest and has to be guarded against, for instance, by taking children away from parents who, who secretly practice um, Judaism. Um, and so this kind of... Uh, obsession with kind of secret Jewish blood is kind of bound up with the history of the idea of Europe. During the Crusades, Western Christians first, which was Western Christians' first sustained encounter with what we now call the Middle East, it was a time of both brutal anti-Semitism, um, as well as war against Muslims, and the period in which European knowledge of different faiths and ethnicities of our kind of near neighbours Formed. And the historian, Professor Andrew Tuchisky of Royal Holloway University, who's one of the contributors of this book, has described how that happened and how Christian Europeans first identified them as a group, calling themselves Franks, in distinction to the Jews, Muslims, and other non-Europeans they encountered in the Holy Land. Um, the University of Southampton's Francois Soyer has written about a slightly later period uh, in the 15th century when... Um, when Spain was kind of being reconquered by Christians from Muslims and when the Ottomans were kind of advancing through the Balkans towards Vienna. Um, and he writes about how this obsession with kind of secret Jews and Muslims uh, was an obsession of the Spanish Inquisition and was the source of blood libels and conspiracy theories against both Jewish and Muslim doctors. And Soyer shows that libels against Jewish doctors had a more devastating effect than those against Muslim doctors because of a long history of Christian theological anti-Semitism, which created a kind of bank of narratives about Jewish deviousness so that libels against Jewish doctors had a kind of um, social resonance at that time. And this trope of the malevolent secret Jewish doctor, you'll probably be familiar with the Soviet doctor's plot or with allegations about Israeli um, organ stealing, has persisted in, in the 600 years since then as of other tropes related to blood, such as those that attach themselves to panics about male circumcision, about ritual slaughter. And these have constantly mutated and taken different forms in different parts of Europe, sometimes being deployed also against Muslims, and other times not. 
And at the same time, tropes about Muslim fanaticism and Islamic military geopolitical threats, tropes which were developed at the time of the Christian reconquest of Spain and the Ottoman advance through the Balkans, have also persisted, again taking various forms. And I think if we look at, say, the Leave campaigns, kind of images of Turkish invasion in 2016 in the referendum, or the English Defence League's use of images of crusaders, or the fact that one of the most significant counter-jihadi blogs is called The Gates of Vienna. This kind of memory, this history, is still alive. And so, as with the resonance of libels against Jewish doctors, contemporary libels against Muslims as invaders or jihadis are effective because they resonate socially, drawing on long-existing tropes of anti-Muslim fear. And sometimes we can see these tropes, anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim tropes, um, side by side, for example, the idea of globalist, globalist elites kind of exemplified by Soros orchestrating a Muslim migration crisis. So the second point I want to make today um, is that apparently kind of esoteric archival work such as Andrew Duchisky's on Crusader Diaries or Francois Soyer's on stories about Spanish and Portuguese doctors is vital for understanding contemporary forms of racialization, which are always, as Sivanandan said, layered, marked by the layering of past forms. So if we think of Islamophobia as something new, as something to do with the war on terror, or as a kind of invention of the Muslim Brotherhood, as it is in some conspiracy theories, then we miss what makes this, these contemporary forms of racialization so powerful, what makes them so effective. Um, which I guess is an argument for the value of humanities scholarship and for dialogue between historical research and social science and other more immediately policy-related disciplines. Um, so the third point I want to make <coughs> is slightly different, which is that an emphasis on identifying or outing anti-Semites or Islamophobes or an emphasis on the psychology or motivation of individual racists is an unhelpful approach to combating these forms of racism. When you start to see how the kind of deep layers of anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim thought are fundamental in Britain and Europe's history in a way that gives their contemporary forms social resonance, then the motives or prejudices of individual racists is, becomes irrelevant. Anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are wired into Europe's imagination in a way that means the most liberal as well as the most reactionary of us carry and circulate these repertoires, these stories, in a sometimes less than fully conscious way. And so I'd suggest that unpicking these tropes, as we try to do in this book, and unpicking how they continue to thrive long after the conditions which birthed them have gone, is one of the fundamental intellectual tasks of anti-racism. Um, the fourth... Um, I'll come to the end now. The fourth um, point I want to make is that for European Jews and Muslims, these tropes hurt. They have effect on, on, on lives. The consciousness of being Europe's outsiders is central to both Jewish and Muslim experience today. And this generates particular forms of insecurity, a sense of always being suspect and at risk of being only conditionally tolerated. And this um, situation, instead of generating solidarity between Muslims and Jews, too often generates tension instead. And the chapter in our book by um, Yulia Egorova and Fiaz Ahmed of Durham University um, based on their ethnographic research with contemporary British Muslims and Jews, fleshes out what this means for Jewish-Muslim relations, whose with Jews and Muslims' perceptions of each other always structured by their own sense of minority experience in Britain and this sense of kind of insecurity and, and being at risk. 
So, finally, the, this kind of story I started with of Islamophobia being the new anti-Semitism promotes a perverse calculus by which racisms are measured against each other, the intensity of one necessarily diminishing the value of the other. And the way in which Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are always placed kind of side by side in a competition for victimhood also positions the British state as a kind of neutral arbiter and Muslims and Jews as always outside that British mainstream petitioning it for recognition of grievances. I think that's something that we really need to kind of overcome. So we're living through a moment that offers a greater than ever challenge to the task of thinking and combating anti-Semitism and Islamophobia together in a context overdetermined or, as some people put it, weaponized by the Israel-Palestine conflict. The spectacular kind of recent return of the question of Europe, um, the kind of global war on what's called globalism, um, which has seen ancient anti-Ottoman prejudices and old anti-Semitic conspiracy theories re-emerging for new use, is also part of that context. But I think paradoxically, maybe hopefully, the more visible intertwining of anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim rhetoric from people like Trump also have maybe the silver lining of making new alliances more thinkable, um, new forms of solidarity. So just to finish the complex relationship between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, in which a shared experience is never identical, as both hatreds mutate over time, creates a complex relationship between the politics of anti-anti-Semitism and the politics of anti-Islamophobia. And Dan Gordon's excavation in in the book of the history of French anti-racism, which is often portrayed as a kind of split between two camps, one that care about one racism and one which cares about the other, shows that there's a kind of a subterranean connection between these different anti-racist struggles, opening up what we could think of as a kind of cosmopolitan understanding of racism that takes both into account. And this understanding um, kind of requires a deeply historical and rigorously comparative understanding of each form of racism, an understanding of which respects what's specific about each one of them as well as what's shared, that understands what mutates as well as what persists. And I think that the dark times in which we live make this a particularly urgent task. Thank you. Indeed, dark times. And um, in the forthcoming first issue of Monitor, there's a, a number of articles that are going to be concentrating on different aspects of those dark times, particularly since 2015, with the refugee crisis and its aftermath. Um, and, of course, the seminal moment of Charlie Hebdo. Um, and actually, I'd just like to say that uh, Monitor has been made available, a capsule site has been made available for everybody here for the next hour or so. So if everybody wants to, uh, the new etiquette of looking at other things whilst <laughs> someone is speaking on their, on their phones, then please do feel free. Um, and you'll see on your postcards that the address for the, uh, the magazine is there. Just a sneak preview uh, over the next hour. Um, so on the, the notes, that point of the seminal moment of 2015... I think there's an elephant in the room that needs to be grappled with immediately when we start talking about a relationship between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia um, or comparisons, connections, which is after a moment in which Islamist terrorists murdered Jews. And this is the day after the third anniversary of that particular horrific event. 
Many people find it offensive to suggest that we can connect the war on anti-Semitism with a war against Islamophobia, where Muslims and Jews are in public discourse often seen as being on two different sides of the war on terror, particularly after this moment. And here we have the image of the Ipikache, the site where Jews were murdered as part of these events. And the particular moment in which this meeting is taking place is also tricky for, I think, another point, because it's a liminal moment between the third anniversary of Charlie Hebdo and, of course, International Holocaust Memorial Day. Because one of the first things when we speak in public about these issues that people will say is, how can you say that there is any comparison between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia after the Shoah? It's offensive. These, these are racisms that operate in a completely different space on a completely different level. But, but, if we look into the archive, if we look into the history of Europe, actually, into the history of racism, the Holocaust was not the norm in racism. It was an aberration in the history of racism. What was the Nazi empire trying to do with its annihilation of world Jewry? It was trying to destroy what it saw as the enemy of the Aryan in a struggle for world power, a struggle for sovereignty <coughs> over the globe. Across the centuries, though, certainly from the moment of the Reformation, in the war for sovereignty that was born at that time in Christendom, mm-hmm. the norm was actually to suspect that Jews had the potential to be rebels against Christian sovereignty. That there wasn't a zero-sum game war, as the Nazis imagined, in which all Jews had to be destroyed. Jews were suspect in Europe for centuries as the potential to overcome Christendom. But the Nazi model, the Nazi conception that led to mass murder was actually out of kilter with that history. And if we look at the norm of the history of thinking about Jews as potential revolutionaries against Christendom, potential for the most part as they were seen, we can see that actually the figure of the Muslim was a key key figure in these ideas and this discourse. So, I can just navigate this. I've taken a bit of Florence with me here today. Um, these are all depictions. I don't know if anybody's aware of, the, of these pieces. These are all depictions. Can you see this? Of a particular story in the Christian Bible, the book of Judith, which is actually not in, in uh, the Jewish Bible. And the story about a rebel, somebody who fought against an invading Assyrian army in the Holy Land, who beheaded the general of that army, Holfinus. The story of Judith was a key figure in the imaginary of the Renaissance. (coughs) Stories of rebels, of Jewish rebels, were key figures of the Renaissance and a key preoccupation with European intellectual thought from the time of Martin Luther all the way up to Voltaire and beyond. The Jewish zealot, the Jewish fanatic, or as we would call it today, the Jewish extremist, 
was a preoccupation of thinking about sovereignty in Christendom's crisis of sovereignty after the Reformation. And so for this reason, we see here on the left, this is a, uh, a depiction by Botticelli in the 15th century of Judith and her maidservant carrying the head of Holfinus. It's all very gruesome stuff. Uh, we have a statue which is just outside the Palazzo Vecchio, a copy of it uh, today uh, by Donatello. But this is at the moment of the beheading of Holfinus by Judith. And here we have Artemisia Gentileschi, one of her depictions after Caravaggio of the gruesome beheading. It's interesting to note that Gentileschi painted this scene, this story of rebellion, of fanaticism, five times. The idea of the Jewish fanatic was a preoccupation, not just in art, but in intellectual thinking. As a way of thinking through, of understanding the fanatic in general, the potential rebel within society. And this was a space that was negotiated, that was thought through by Christian thinkers, in which there was a Jewish fanatic, but there was, of course, up until the Enlightenment, the Christian fanatic, the religious-inspired revolutionary and then was also the potential Muslim fanatic from the beginning. Even though the Jewish fanatic was the preoccupation, it is of no small significance that Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, published in 1543, when he talked about the Jewish conspiracy to capture the sovereignty of Christendom, to control the world, to grab the joys of the world, he talked of Muslims, of Saracens, as good Jews, as wanting to do the same thing, as inhabiting the same space, the same objective. It is there in the archive, this connection, this idea of the Muslim fanatic alongside the Jewish fanatic and the Christian fanatic in Christian thought, in political, theological thought. It is a theological notion of competing for power within the Abrahamic monotheistic family. This is one key powerful aspect of how Jews and Muslims and Christians are thought alongside each other within a Christian political philosophy from the time of the Reformation. And this is one part of the connections between how Jews and Muslims were understood through the perspective of political theology from early modernity. Others included the notion that Jews and Muslims were peculiarly obstinate in refusing the reality of the Christian Messiah, that they believed in an unforgiving God, all these different connections, and of course their potential fanaticism. And these connections between the idea of the Jew and the Muslim come to the fore in the most concentrated form at the end of the 18th century, in the idea of the Semite which drew upon, as Ben was saying, centuries of thinking about Jews and, and Muslims originating, Muslim Arabs originating from the same space of Western Asia. And in the idea of the Semite, through Enlightenment thinking and the development of uh, a science of philology, the study of ancient language, to think about origins, to think about racial connections, of connections through blood and geography and language, the Jew and the Muslim Arab are fused together in one concept, the idea of the Semitic. 
term that was first used, we think, in the early 1780s, 1781, by August Ludwig von Schlerzer, who'd been a student at the University of Göttingen. And this idea that Jews and Arabs were connected, not just through their theological beliefs and their theological practices, but by blood, became part of the European architecture of thinking about the world. Because from the very beginning, the idea of the Semitic did not stand alone. Because of the long tradition of thinking about Jews and Muslims in connection with Christianity as part of the Christian self, the Semite was always thought about in connection with the notion of the Aryan. The racial origin of Christian Europe. And once we get to the middle of the 19th century, here we have a, uh, a typical expression of this thinking of Jews and, and Arabs as being one and the same, from the same geography, the same race, the same linguistic origin. Uh, this is a, a painting by uh, that great pre-Raphaelite, William Holman Hunt, who himself travelled to the Holy Land in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and this is a painting of a, of a scene that was of great interest uh, in European art uh, from the medieval period of the finding of the Saviour in the Temple. Uh, it fits all of the, the, the typical elements that you would expect in European painting of the exoticised east of the Orient, um, except that it's about Jews. And actually, that wasn't really an exception. This was quite common by the middle of the 19th century. Jews as Orientals, Jews as the archetype of the Oriental. But the, the style of this painting, the way in which Jews are being presented as typically Oriental, is interesting, it's significant, but also the fact that at base this painting is about theology is also of critical significance for our understanding of the history of the relationship between the idea of the Jew and the Muslim in Europe. This was a story, this painting, about Christianity. This was the moment where Jesus gets lost in the temple, found by his parents, preaching to the priests. Within Christian theology, in whatever form, Judaism is absolutely essential in terms of its understanding of its past, its present, and its future redemption. Christianity cannot exist without Judaism. But Christianity can exist without Islam. And this is a fundamental difference between Christian European ideas of Jews and Muslims through the centuries. For all of the connections, for all of the similarities, these figures were never the same. They were never the same. Because Judaism was always of greater significance to the Christian imaginary. And this meant that when the idea of the Semite came into question, came under stress, the notion that the Jew and the Muslim Arab were so fundamentally connected could also so easily fall apart. Even though this concept was at the heart of European understandings of the world, the idea of the Semitic alongside the Aryan, 
Once the Zionist-Palestinian conflict erupted at the beginning of the 20th century and made a nonsense of this idea and put that idea under stress, it quickly fell from grace. And indeed, we see at the moment in which another element of this history that is still with us to this day, the concept of the two-state solution for the Israel-Palestine conflict, the moment when that was born in 1937 in the report of the Royal Commission for Palestine's recommendations for the conflict, at that particular moment, it was argued that there needed to be a separation, there needed to be a Jewish state and an Arab state in Palestine because, fundamentally, they were separate racially. Jews were of Europe, they were not European. And the Arabs were of Asia. This is the moment where you can really see the concept of the Semitic before the Holocaust has fallen from grace. But, another but, to finish with. Even though the explicit notion of the Semitic, this most concentrated form of the ideas that link together the Jew and the Muslim in European thinking, in European culture, disappeared before the Second World War as a serious notion. It was born of centuries of thinking about Jews and Muslims together as part of Christian political theology. Even though the concept was vulnerable because of the distinctions between how Jews and Judaism and Muslims and and, uh, Islam were understood within the European Christian imaginary, there were such powerful connections that they haven't disappeared. The shadow of the Semites is still with us. The idea that there is a Jewish world conspiracy is still there. And for all of its differences, the idea of a potential Muslim revolution against Christian sovereignty across the West to seize the West is still there. The idea of an invading Muslim horde is still there. All of these connections are there. And they are there because the Christian and the Muslim has always been at the centre of Christian self-understanding in Europe. Thank you. Thank you very, very much indeed. I think that that um, historical analysis of perceptions and, and trends is something which is very much absent in contemporary discussions about current triggers for, for what's happening now, and I think this is really very, very important work. Um, I see that John is here. John, would you like to take over from me? That's good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Louise. I was detained at the moment in an important organisation. We're, um, we're going to move over to our three panellists now. Omar, Danny, Sally. I think Omar, you're going to go first, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Because you're so nearest to me. <laughs> Would you like to give some... I, I'll try. I see there's a very esteemed chair and esteemed audience here to, to join the discussion, so I'll try to be quick. I think it is important, as we've just heard uh, from the gentleman, that we know this history that was just outlined, 
And to recall, the Renegade Trust is uh, it's, it's our 50th anniversary this year. And occasionally we get people editing our Wikipedia page to say the Runnymede Trust, comma, founded by two Jews, comma. And I never really know what, what to make of that sort of editing. On the one hand, it's factually correct. But on the other hand, they are trying to resonate a particular story. And I get hate mail of this sort, that uh, we were founded by Jews to overrun Christian Europe through, in, uh, through being a pro-migrant organization to bring Asians and Africans to Europe to outbreed the white man. And I, I get emails like that all the time, and Jews are blamed for, for that apparent conspiracy, and of course Muslims. And I, I get called an Islamo-Nazi as well as a Jewish Trotsky at, at the same time. But anyway, moving on from that, just to show that that history, the resonance of that history indeed does uh, you know, uh, play out today, I, I thought I'd just try to quickly say two things about why I think this work is so important i.e. connecting Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. I think it is indeed important to note the similarities and links, not merely historically, but today, uh, but also to be cautious in overstating the fact that these forms of racism are identical or exactly the same. Um, we, uh, found, uh, we published a report on Islamophobia in, in November. Um, I think that's one of the reasons I've been invited, in which we put out a definition of Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism. And I, the reason we did that is we felt that there was a misunderstanding of what Islamophobia was uh, in terms of thinking about it uh, as a, a fear of the faith of Islam as opposed to structural inequalities and uh, anti-Muslim hatred that we see on the streets, unfortunately. And in that way, it's also connected to, to anti-Semitism, which isn't just merely, as, as Ben eloquently described, about the psychological behaviors and attitudes in people's minds, but the real uh, outcomes of anti-Semitism on the streets and in, in, indeed in the sort of imaginary of who we are as a country where Jews still uh, face exclusion and still are often seen as the sort of quintessential other of, of European identity. Um, and I wanted to say then two things because I don't want to take up too much more time about how, to, how it's important in thinking about our concept of racism or racisms that that then also informs the way that we respond to, mobilize against, whether it's as civil society actors like the Running Me Trust, many of you in this audience who, who have fought the good fight against anti-Semitism and other forms of racism and Islamophobia, and indeed how policy responds to uh, those inequalities. Which is to say, if we don't think about it in terms of these structural inequalities, whether that's violence on the streets or <coughs> in the labor market, we'll have the wrong solutions uh, to those forms of racism. But if we don't understand the differences and how they play out will also have the wrong policy and public responses. And here, I, I want to caution about uh, fully uh, thinking about racism merely from the perspective of your own group. So while I completely endorse uh, sort of uh, black self-organization or Jews fighting against anti-Semitism or indeed Muslims fighting against Islamophobia, there's nothing wrong or inappropriate about that. That's completely irrational and correct political response to an injustice that you face as an individual and that your group faces. However, that's not where we should end, and especially it's not where we should end if we are indeed principled anti-racists. We need to not merely understand the form of racism that affects us. And I think that can be a challenge, actually, that people misunderstand what Islamophobia is because they're not Muslims, and so they reflect whether or not Islamophobia matches or tracks anti-Semitism or anti-black racism and then don't get the nature of modern Islam or indeed historic Islamophobia. Similarly, I think 
you know, black and Muslim groups sometimes don't necessarily understand the nature of anti-Semitism because they come at it from their personal experience of, say, discrimination in the labor market, and the perception is that Jews in modern Britain don't face the same kinds of inequalities in terms of their surnames. That may or may not be the case. I don't know if there is current evidence on whether uh, Jews experience discrimination of that old-fashioned sort in the labor market today. But the, the more important point, I think, is that forms of racism do indeed differ, and you need to listen to those other groups in terms of understanding that. You need to understand the evidence that's marshaled in this book and hopefully in this journal that we're now seeing. And hopefully that won't just understand, help our understanding of racisms in other forms, especially anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, but improve the way we respond so that we build on our personal uh, response to injustice to have a wider and more principled anti-racism that, can, uh, that we, we need not just here in Britain, but in Europe. You know, that's... That's me. Thank you. Um, thanks. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm Sally Cedian. I'm from um, the, the new, I better get the name right, see that it changed yesterday, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. And um, my role is, uh, I basically coordinate the work we do around um, anti-Semitism, uh, Islamophobia, uh, uh, anti-Muslim hatred, um, the department has a bit of an issue around using the word Islamophobia, which is also open, it's a good debate to have as well. And I think it goes to the point that Umar was making about the fact that um, it's not about the fear of Islam, it's about the, the, the you know, and that's what we're trying to get, it's about actually impact on individuals. And I think our general principle is, um, while we recognise that there are sort of crossovers and um, general sort of things that we can work on together, is that the general principle is that all of us that work in this space, if we can't condemn all forms of racism, all forms of hatred, then we're actually part of the problem. And I think that's the sort of general principle that we are operating from. Um, obviously, we do have um, various, we have a cross-government working group against anti-Semitism, we have a cross-government working group against anti-Muslim hatred. We also have a cross-government working group against every other strand of hate crime. And sometimes it's quite difficult to bring all these strands together because although the principle is generally about um, uh, treating all uh, forms of racism and, and hate crime the same, there are different approaches in each case. And, and I think that's important. And I do think that we can learn from each other. So I do think that the work that we've done, and I think it's a really good guiding principle, that the work that we've done around anti Semitism um, has, um, we've done that for a much longer period. And, I do, and one of the key principles there is that all the work that we do on anti-Semitism wouldn't help in any kind of way if we couldn't actually apply it across the piece. There's no point having a solution to tackle anti-Semitism if you don't have a solution to then tackle anti-Muslim hatred or any other form of um, racism or a form of hate crime. And I think that's one of our guiding principles. And a lot of the things that have been suggested from the, we, we, work, we do work with civil society in terms of the cross-government working groups. There is direct representation, work together. It's not about <coughs> us imposing on um, civil society. It's about working together to a solution. And I think um, some of the things, I mean, I do definitely recognize that when we do have incidents, for example, terrorist, uh, terrorist attacks, there's, there's, all, there's two things to, what's really interesting is you don't just necessarily see, for example, if, if um, 
ISIS or Daesh has uh, claimed responsibility for the, for the attack, you do see a backlash against the Muslim community here. But at the same time, you also see a fear in the Jewish community because of um, the added threat that they feel. But uh, you also then see other groups. So, for example, um, during a lot of the, um, you see a rise in hate crime across the piece. It's not just against, particularly against Muslims or Jews. It's actually across the piece. And that kind of just, that's a really important point to make, that we shouldn't just focus, I mean, it's important to focus on anti-Muslim hatred and anti-Semitism, but it's, it's very much wider than that. So I'm Danny Stoner, I'm the Director of the Anti-Semitism Policy Trust. I want to try and just bring, as we come to question, some kind of contemporary thinking and policy uh, relevance, some practical examples um, <clears throat> for everyone. I think it was Ben who mentioned Trump. Oh, we're, in, <coughs> excuse me. we're in, um, in interesting times. I went to a session with an American civil rights activist recently, and he was suggesting that, speaking about anti-Semitism, it's one of the oils, or an oil, for the, for the fuel of white nationalism. And he separated white nationalism from white supremacy. And he said that white supremacy was this movement that had died, essentially, in the wake of the civil rights movement, it had failed. And it needed to find an answer, because given it had failed, why had it failed? Well, the answer must be a Jewish conspiracy. Um, the, the way in which that kind of ancient hatred, has, as we've heard, you know, has persisted and has fed what is now white nationalism, White nationalism has taken that, that thinking, that ideology, and adapted it, and is trying to apply it. And you've seen it, I think, to a greater or lesser extent, in some of the nationalist politics that, that's playing out in our world today. The contemporary danger is that, if you think about, about the demographics that that's reaching, the young, young people today, I, I thought I was young until recently, young people today have, have different kind of historical touch points. So kids going to college might have even been born after 9-11. Um, the Holocaust is totally distant. It, it's historical. So if you want to take on a kind of this progressive cultural hegemony, then it's easier to do so because you, you aren't dealing with people who have the same kind of context that perhaps they, they once had. So in that, in, that, in that context, with that thinking, what do we do? Um, well, I mean, we work in the UK, obviously, and, and there are, for me, uh, and sorry, I, I should say also that whilst that civil rights activist was talking about anti-Semitism, to me, Islamophobia is at, is at the heart of that as well. Right? You see it time and time again in the rhetoric that's playing out. And so, so what do we do? Uh, I think, firstly, uh, Ben was saying that, that you know, individuals can't necessarily be blamed because there's this... this big kind of network of thinking that they're feeding or drawing down from, but I think that lets them get away too easily. I think we do have to take on the individuals, and, and for the Jewish and for the Muslim community, there is a res- both a responsibility and a challenge um, to address prejudice within their own communities. Um, so in the Jewish community, I know, I know of an example of a, of a teacher at a school, um, there was a joint interfaith event, and the teacher, Jewish teacher, there was a sentence was being said, um, and the problem for Muslims or with Muslims is, and the teacher finished the sentence by saying there's too many of them. 
And that's not an isolated incident. I know of many cases of, of that kind of language being used in, uh, by, by Jewish people. That's a problem. That's a problem for the Jewish community. And it's one that it needs to address at schools and community centres and elsewhere in the general discourse. Equally, the, the problem in the Muslim community of, of this kind of question of Zionist, Zionist takeover, Zionist influence that you've heard, um, we've heard it in Parliament, we've heard it from um, groups operating to try and address Islamophobia. That's a problem. That narrative needs to be addressed within the Muslim community. In terms of things that we can work together on, I'll finish with this. There are so many challenges. Uh, racism is so prevalent on social media. There's all kinds of rubbish and no one knows who to trust. There's anonymity, so there's no real cost in abusing someone. Um, it's global, it's transactional. So working together to try and address social media, particularly in like the digital charter that the government's got coming out and the internet safety strategy is a good place to start. And we've got shared concerns. The Office for Students is being established. There's a risk register. Nowhere on that risk register is there a place that Muslim or Jewish students can look to a university or an institution and say, hold on, what are you doing as part of your fundamental structures to ensure safer campus communities, to ensure that there's access for, for uh, 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 there, there is routes for address for those that are the victims of racism. If so, just before Christmas, the Independent Press Standards Organisation reviewed its charter. It has given a slight uh, change in so much as if an individual is, is discriminated against, groups have recourse um, to complain about the discrimination against an individual. Groups can't complain. So when the Muslim community is discriminated against in the press, they have to complain under accuracy. And the same for the Jewish community. So there's just a few examples of practical policy issues um, that exist, frameworks that we can address and make better, um, both within the Jewish community, the Muslim community, and together. Thank you. I, uh, I want to make the observation that I, uh, I was... Uh, so my name is John Manning. Yeah, I have not introduced myself. Um, I was meant to be chairing this from the beginning, so thank you, Louise. I was asked by the Football Association to chair a task force into Islamophobia and uh, anti-Semitism in football. Um, and I'm able to report the old conclusions, which were that football's equally bad when it comes to uh, either, um, and doesn't seem to differentiate or discriminate between the two. Um, but I, in our work, what we've found and said as a principle in the Parliamentary Committee on Antisemitism has been that if we can get a change in society, in any institution, be it governmental or in civic society, that there is no reason why that shouldn't apply to other groups facing prejudice or discrimination. And that any improvement is directly transferable and that's been my experience um, and I don't think we make quite enough of that so for example an improvement in policing or an improvement in prosecution or an improvement in reporting systems in universities are directly applicable if the system is good 
as long as someone chooses to apply them. And uh, that's been a kind of guiding principle um, that, that, that we've had. Um, and I think a relative amount of success with that as well, but one we perhaps should talk more about. Can I open it up? To the esteemed visitors to the Palace of Westminster. I see a regular esteemed visitor there. My name is John Neeson. I represent the CSC, the Community Security Trust. Uh, we're responsible, charity responsible for the security of the Jewish community. We also monitor them with anti centers in the UK for over 30 years. Um, firstly, I want to say thank you to, to all the panelists. I thought it was fascinating, especially um, uh, the history and the points about outlined by Ben and James. Which I think, you know, certainly as somebody who, who speaking personally, who, who engages with anti-Semitism and racism uh, as part of my, my day job, um, I certainly didn't know enough about that coming into here today. I think it's something that needs to, needs to be expanded and, and needs to be talked about more. And that shared story needs to, needs to have, have more focus. Um, I'd like to put on, on, on a couple of things that, that Sally and, and Danny and John said. Um, CST has always been working as part of our, our founding principles to try and, 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 and work with other communities um, uh, to effect better change. And I think until recently, um, maybe the last three, four, five years, the communities that represented minority communities uh, were working in silos. And I think certainly in, in, in the last few years we're seeing more of an anti-hate community, uh, which, which, which is only positive, whereby there are several uh, processes um, and, and programs whereby uh, Jewish and Muslim groups are working together, uh, Jewish Muslim groups, LGBT groups, uh, groups that focus on, on racist hate crime, uh, this, this, uh, disability hate crime, are working in collaboration on, on, on various programs, whether it's on hate crime advocacy or anti-discrimination sessions in schools. And I think that's really great. Um, one thing that I, I, I'd be interested in asking uh, from a perspective uh, from, from, from the panellists is, is moving forward, and this is something that, that Danny drew on. Um, at the end of last year, CSP and the Institute of Jewish Policy Research undertook really in-depth um, uh, polling process and, and analysis of <coughs> anti-Semitism in the UK and found that there are a very small percentage of what we would call bona fide anti-Semites in the country, um, though the spread of anti-Semitic discourse is unfortunately quite prevalent. Um, and one of the things that they found is that, unfortunately, um, if you are from the Muslim community, you're more likely to buy into more elements of anti-Semitic discourse if you weren't. Uh, Danny outlined some of the issues within the Jewish community, which um, you know, shameful. There are other examples, recent examples I can think of, specifically um, uh, a local response to the establishment of a, uh, a Muslim community centre in what is what is thought to perceive to be a Jewish area of London, which you know I feel I'm shameful of as a Jew, but I'm also proud of the leadership of the Jewish community for condemning that uh, immediately and quickly. But I'd be interested in seeing 
what steps can be taken reflecting on the shared story of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in order to educate Jewish communities and, from my perspective, Muslim communities about the perniciousness and the dangers of anti-Semitism within or Islamophobia or anti-Muslim hatred within their own communities. See, one more, and, and please don't, it's your first uh, visit here, don't feel inhibited in coming and asking a question or making a point. You're very welcome to do so. Take the gentleman there. Okay, uh, um, first of all, I, I, I appreciate this meeting. I'm a, I'm a historian. Um, obviously, American, I've been here for 20 years, and I'm very proud to say that Dr. James Renton was my first PhD student at University College London. Um, I have connections to other people here as well, but I think it's, it's really important to say this explicitly. That is, um, very sadly, the President of the United States, at the very least, is an enabler of racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Arab sentiment, anti-Islam sentiment. And part of the problem is, although we're in Parliament, although he has a national agenda, he also, and people who say that they support him, have a very international perspective as well. So we not only have the alt-right in the United States, but they are very connected to like-minded people throughout Europe. And I think that we can't be blind to that, that it isn't simply within one nation's borders and um, it spreads, and this is a huge, huge problem. Now, one last point about the alt-right versus the alt-alt-right. One of the, one of the claims, and I'm not going to say, I'm not by any means saying that, that Trump is a Nazi, but I'm a historian. The Nazis love to claim that, that they didn't simply hate people different from themselves because they were supportive of Muslims and Arabs and Arab nationalism, which was purely instrumental. There was nothing deep about it at all. It was simply instrumental as far as a cudgel against Jews and a means of anti-Semitism. And I think among the far right today, their so-called philo-Semitism and sentiments or posture that see as being pro-Israel is also very superficial and it's simply a cudgel against Muslims and Arabs and we need to be very sensitive to that. That uh, um, sometimes things aren't quite as they see. So, gentlemen here, and yep. Um, to, yep, please. Vic Sergeant Goldsmith, um, University of London. Um, I think it's been really, really important discussion, particularly to be reminded of how these histories are significant in the present, because they help us understand why it has such an emotional impact in this new situation that we're facing. But as well as being reminded of the histories, I think we have to reflect on that we're in, within Europe, and particularly in the kind of post-Brexit British situation, in a very changed situation that we don't necessarily understand. <coughs> That's why this discussion is so vital, because questions of racism, particularly in terms of the category of hate crime, has been a really important way of thinking across the boundaries of different forms of uh, inequality. But the language of inequality, particularly the language of structural inequality that Rangmeet has kind of introduced, 
is vital and important, but it's also really important to understand the interconnection between theologies and politics. And as a sociologist, who's written about kind of 9 11 and other incidents, I realized that I was educated into a discipline of secular rationalism that when 9-11 happened, even though I'm a professor of sociology in the University of London, I knew hardly anything about Islam. I wasn't educated across the boundary of how to think the significance of theologies in relationship to contemporary politics. So I think there is a challenge that we need to kind of, not just to frame prejudice on the one hand and structural social inequalities on the other, as if structural social inequalities develop social policies, without thinking that we have to really think in a kind of very deep way about the change the new situation we face. One last point. In the discussion around the difficulties in the Jewish community, which is quite Islamophobic, to think about Islamophobia, when it was said that the Holocaust, this was James, I think, mentioned it, was an aberration in terms of the history of European forms of anti-Semitism and racism, I thought, no, you can't maintain that position. You have to think it out much more carefully if you want to be able to engage the kind of Islamophobic feeling or anti-Muslim feeling within the Jewish community. You're going to have to think away, think about, and I think the notion of CMIC is really important, but we need to make the analysis much more complicated if we're going to be able to talk across these different communities. And I think that work is really still to be done, but I think this is a really important beginning. Take two, two women. I'll take the woman at the back and yeah, the back Hi, I'm Julia Hickson, Lisa Machine, and we work with Jewish and Muslim women across the country to bring them together in friendship and hatred. And I wanted to ask the panel if they have any practical ideas about how we, as people in this room who are fighting these forms of hatred together, uh, can use the history and research to try to break down this competitive victimhood problem, because I think Ben referred to the art being. Um, maybe an opportunity for us to come together and unify, but in fact, I'm afraid to say I have seen actually Trump is dividing us, um, especially among Muslim and Jewish communities. And so I'd just be interested if anyone had any practical, tangible ideas about how we can really use this information to break down that problem of domestic victimhood, which might be holding us back in the anti hatred movement that Johnny Kirti So I'll bring you back in in... in, 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 in. <coughs> in a bit on that, so hold or be thinking through. Don't lose the question, please, panellists. I think that my comment probably should build on the comment of the previous speaker and also on the comment by Professor about this kind of really skinny rhetorical alliances between the ultra-right and specific minority communities. I think that the um, question of competitive victimhood, as you just put it, and then the problem of pulling instrumentalist approaches and establishing alliances, uh, particularly the way we see 
It happening in the outer right, the more mainstream right, um, are indeed very, very challenging. So, for instance, in my work, I've looked at attitudes towards Jewishness and Muslims in India, in the rhetoric of the Hindu right, and there, again, we see this um, construction of Jews as a perfect minority as the expanse of the Muslim minority. So it's amazing that the phenomenon Thank you. Um, um, I also guess the from Oakland Vice here. Um, I, I work in different uh, with different communities with different works uh, beyond necessarily uh, interfaith or anything like that. But what what I find is personally for me, not being Jewish, uh, I, I appreciate from an early age that the Holocaust is a fundamental moral compass for any human being. Who exists. It, it teaches us a great deal about what, what can happen. And I think, you know, seeing how things move forward, uh, my question is uh, related to political representation, literal political representation, because that is fundamentally accountable. Uh, other forms of accountability of institutions come and go because people can deem themselves a director or something. But political representation is very important because actually a lot of that stuff in Germany happened in that form too. And I think the other element of that, which we see now in Europe as, as elsewhere, is that uh, the ends justify the means and all these elements where a, a person of political representation decides that they can sort of cross the line because fundamentally they're a good person anyway, but they are connecting with people who vote uh, that perhaps think in difficult ways regarding other communities. Uh, whether it's Jewish or Muslim or, or any other background, uh, political representation within a constituency means that perhaps they seek votes uh, with people who may be problematic. Uh, as a citizen, I find it fundamentally frightening that now I can't talk about it. I can't say, why is the person who is representing a constituency seeking votes in places they shouldn't, maybe, or perhaps questioning the people who think in difficult ways, but nevertheless hold the vote. So for me, uh, as a citizen, I am keen for this project to move forward, because I think we have to ask these difficult questions, especially in environments like this, because I find politicians are being far too pragmatic about things that we should hold dear, which is our personal safety. Thank you. Yes, um, if, 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 if I may, I'd like to respond to the question about, about uh, competitive victimhood, just by, by um, uh, talking briefly about the, the findings that, that, uh, that, I, that I made in my chapter in the book. I'm, I'm Daniel Gordon from Metro University, and what, I, I think that clearly today attempts to forge unity uh, against racism are often founded on, on the rocks of an apparently you know, an unbridgeable divide between you know, what kind of racism is deemed most urgent to, to confront? And, and yes, at times, one is tempted to despair that we're, we're just falling into this, this kind of game of competitive victimhood. But, but, but my, my chapter on, on French anti-racist movements just, just suggests a slightly more optimistic uh, conclusion. Um, because it's, 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 it's not inevitable that anti-racists come, come to blows on, on this question as they, as they recently um, appeared to. Um, positions on the relative importance of anti-Semitism anti and Islamophobia are not fixed. They, they, they change over, over time. 
And, and sometimes what, what look like ethnic divides are, are actually political divides. Um, so, for example, I, I, looked, um, I, I looked at the four main anti-racist groups in, in France, and while they've often sort of engaged in polemics on this, this, this issue, that today sometimes look like arguments between Muslims and Jews, um, originally, um, they were actually arguments between, between two, two different group, groups of Jews, one, one anti-communist, the other, the other communist. Um, and, and actually, both um, ultimately did consider both, both anti-Semitism and uh, questions of, of colonial racism to, to, be, to be important. And you know, basically, at, at, at their best, those struggles um, had gone together. They haven't, they haven't always been zero-sum games. So, you know, there are alternative histories of, of mutual solidarity from the past that we can talk about in the present. Now, in, 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 the, case of, in the case of France, uh, people are kind of rediscovering that, that um, the Paris mosque saved North African Jews from the Holocaust by, by giving them false, false papers, passing them off as Muslims. They're rediscovering that when um, 130 Algerian demonstrators were, were, were killed by the police in, in Paris in 1961, that's the parallels with, with violence and tolerance against Jews were, were not lost on people at, at, at the time. So, um, my, my conclusion is really that the death of universalism has been perhaps a little exaggerated, at least, at least, at least for the French case. And while it is easy to criticise that universalism as paternalistic and, and, yes, open to political manipulation, we might also ask, is, is there not something admirable um, in its refusal to see the world in ethnic categories? What, in short, is, is wrong with, with altruism? Thank you. Any? Yes. Um, I'm not representing anybody here except myself. I'm, I'm on the committee of my Jewish community, and I'm well, by no means brave enough to suggest I represent anybody else in that community. Um, but I'm interested, I mean, we are a progressive community, and I mean, even in our sort of rather sort of bubble world in some ways in North London, you still sometimes, as you're socialising on a Saturday or whatever, pick up on comments that are challenging in relation to Islam and Arabs and so on. And what, what, I really have a question for some of the people here, which is, I have found what I've heard of the historical background in particular, illuminating and challenging. And I can't help feeling that there would be a terrific sort of process of being able to share that, potentially in mixed groups with local mosques and things like that. And I wonder if speakers here would be available, potentially, for that sort of thing to be done, so we could have meetings to explore our joint and separate histories and what that means for the hatreds and so on. And I wonder whether some of the communal organisations here that have out with other communities and you know and, and have inroads into other communities and so on might be interested in putting that together as a sort of a speaking to an initiative um, to do that, to encourage local Muslim and Jewish communities to have joint meetings, to have those discussions and see where it takes them and what it means for them and things like that. Because I would find that very encouraging. I'm very happy to take it back to my committee. And uh, I'll do this temporarily, but I'm quite a sort of senior figure in local Judaism and see whether we can get anywhere with it. What do you think? Thank you. I'll let you come back on that as well in a minute. I'm Mohammed Amin. I'm the Muslim co-chair of the Muslim Jewish Forum of Greater Manchester, which for the last 12 years has worked to bring Muslims and Jews 
in Greater Manchester goes together. And my question, particularly for Omar Khan on the panel, is to ask what he thinks the national leadership of the Muslim community, to the extent that it exists, has actually been doing to strengthen ties with the Jewish community, and what more can be done? Any final questions or see one more please? Um, hi, I'm Alex Murphy, I'm an education officer for the Course Memorial Day Trust. Um, I which is coming up on the of January, um, I was thank James and Bill, I'll be running out and reading your book. Um, it sounds fascinating. One of the things that we really aim to promote is remembering for a purpose and I think there is a real role in learning our history in order to change society today um, and I just think there might be something, some work to be done in terms of our education um, of history um, and relating that to contemporary issues um, and highlighting where those stereotypes and tropes come from. Uh, we're all swimming in a culture that contains these historical things, and it's only by becoming aware of that that you notice it in yourself and and learn to question it. I shall um, open it up to the. the I've just thought of some come down to the night, but I'll leave it till the end. <laughs> Little idea I have. Shall we? Okay. Shall we go and round in? I'll give you the final um, okay. I, I mean, I think I'd just like to respond to some of the sort of things in relation to what we can do in terms of like um, building up the um, building understanding between most of us have been talking about the Jewish community. So just on the issue of um, uh, Nisha Nishim, obviously uh, bringing Muslim, uh, Jewish and Muslim women together um, is really important. But I think um, I kind of took the point that I think you made about um, sort of the Trump issue, that I actually do think um, if one, I mean obviously a big elephant in the room is Trump's, um, and the different attitudes to Ch Trump's rec recognising uh, Jerusalem um, as, as the capital of Israel, which is a big, a big <coughs> debate that's going on. And I do think that if, if I understood you correctly uh, about um, you know, that's, that's what Hitler did when he spoke, when he sort of supported Arab nationalism as a sort of a cuddle against. Um, so I actually think that's really a good thing to bring out, and if, if that could be kind of a discussion, so it kind of goes back to your point about if you were willing, uh, which is the lady over there suggested that we go out and talk to people, because I do think that historical understanding is extremely helpful. Um, the other thing, just in terms of um, uh, sort of um, competition around victimhood. Just one other thing that I thought might be quite interesting is that when it comes to sort of various motivations against hate crime, for example, we do have a situation in the UK where perpetrators of hate crime are not what I would call discerning. Uh, because, uh, for example, um, they may attack a Sikh person thinking that that person is Muslim. And the way that gets by the police as it could be recorded as an anti-Muslim hatred motivation. And that really, really upsets the Sikh community. And there's a lot of work that we have to do around that because actually it's the motivation that gets, you know, it's not. And, and what you actually get is that 
for many people in the Sikh community then blame the Muslim community as opposed to the perpetrator. So I think that's another really interesting sort of bit of an aberration on how things are seen. And then just the last thing, just about sort of a lot of sort of talk about um, the Holocaust, the Shoah. Um, I just think um, one of the things that always worries me about when we talk about the Holocaust is that, you know, it's important to teach about the Holocaust just for historical reasons, that's important. But what I always worry about is when you when Oppermann gets taught in school, the kind of pedagogy around it, um, we don't teach the Holocaust to prevent bullying in schools. That's just ridiculous because, um, you know, it's, it's just a ridiculous thing to do. And often what you find in a lot of our narratives is, well, the reason why we are commemorating the Holocaust is because we want to prevent um, anti-Semitic anti bullying or, or um, anti-Muslim bullying in schools. And that actually isn't the right sort of approach. So I think uh, we can also learn a lot from how we go about, um, uh, you know, where we do things as well. Um, I'll leave it At risk of losing some friends when I suggest <laughs> this, the, um, the suggestions and the, the questions from CST, Nisa Nishim, um <clears throat> in particular, and the, and the idea of what can we do? Well, both of you have kind of highlighted that we might be able to do something with what the speakers have done. Speakers, I'm sure, will be willing to help put together some kind of perhaps shortened or accessible version of what, they, what they've said, and DCLG might be willing to fund something like that. Um, so, you know, that, that looks like a pretty practical outcome already. And on, on political representation, we, um, the work we do, certainly together with CST and others, um, is exactly that, is to talk to politicians about the language that they're using, the discourse that they're using, how problematic it might be. I know that the APG on um, Islamophobia have been doing some of that with, with uh, politicians as well. Um, so that's certainly not a challenge that's being unmet. How successful we are will be key to judge. Yeah, I, I, on representation, I hesitate to mention that the Daily Mail thinks that white men are being massacred today because they don't have ten times the voice of ethnic minorities in the cabinet. But um, the, the, I think there's a lot of challenging questions there. I can't, can't answer uh, all of them. I think, I think the, the focus on practical things that communities and individuals can do is really important. Um, we produced a website called Our Migration Story that's won an award recently that looks at the history of migration from AD 46 to the present, uh, to Britain, and the various forms of migration. You know, two main themes there are that historically Britain has struggled to include and has discriminated against uh, continual waves of migrants, um, and that some groups, especially Jews, Roma, and black people, have been consistently and persistently excluded from our national identity and from access to rights and, and you know, our, our national identity. Um, but also that groups have integrated, right? So there's also a kind of story there about how over the periods of time, about uh, that some groups have had an easier go at that than, than others. And I, I do think building on that and learning from uh, us doing that is, is, is a good idea from, in terms of, of, of learning from the history that we heard today. I do think, as, I've, as it, it's probably not surprising, uh, you know, Running Meet is an anti-racist organization, and so we do think that it's very good to see that um, Muslim and Jews and indeed other groups have come together beyond simply interfaith work to sort because I think you know it started with interfaith work and I think it's a mistake to think that Muslim and Jews you know have tensions in Britain because of their different views on the Torah or the Quran I think it's kind of obviously not the issue um, so moving on to anti-hate I think is at least sharper and is also 
uh, tackling a joint and shared experience. But there are differences too, so I think we need to build up trust first, but we do that, I think, need to tackle some of those challenging issues where we have disagreements as well. Um, but that can't be done until the communities trust and, and learn from each other. But the final thing I'd say is it needs to move beyond just Muslims and Jews talking to each other on the basis of hate crime. We need to talk about racism in our society. We need to involve black groups, white groups, everyone who's committed to uh, a society where your race doesn't matter in terms of your background. And that will hopefully also, I think, help because you're not just talking about Muslim-Jewish issues. And I think that gets boring even for the participants after a while, although many of us in the room uh, participate that. I can't speak, Mohammed, directly to your comment on uh, Muslim national leadership. I'm an anti-racist organization. I don't speak for Muslims. I don't speak, you know, uh, I, I won't defend or criticize any particular organization. I think behind the scenes, as you know, the NCB and Board of Deputies have been working harder to issue joint press statements that are not just press statements, I think, as, as we heard from the Community Security Trust, too. I think there's deep concern about some of what Trump is saying and doing across the piece, and those are genuinely shared. I think also attempts to win things like uh, Gaza, when, when we have these flare-ups, there are behind the scenes uh, you know, links. Whether or not that's enough, I, I, I would probably agree with you. We probably need to see more publicly joint, shared spokespeople across the Muslim Jewish communities. But if, if I'm honest, who, who is the public spokesman on anti-racism generally? We were asked by St. Paul's Cathedral to host in Martin Luther King's 50th anniversary, uh, and speaking at St. Paul's, uh, you know, a British leader on anti-racism who was also well-known amongst St. Paul's Cathedral's uh, parishioners, and we struggled. There, there are not really sort of public voices that are widely recognized in Britain today. And I think that is a huge problem. And we don't see enough political leadership across political parties, across the media, and indeed from, from business. But the final thing to say on the history, I don't think this is about victimhood, actually. I, I kind of object to that term, although I understand where it's coming from. This is about understanding our history. It's not about flagellating ourselves. It's not about saying well, how evil we were. That, that's not the point. The point is to understand when you don't affirm the better nature of yourself, what's the problems, you know, what happens, and to re realize that we ourselves have fallen victim of it. How much more moral learning would we get if Britain reflected on our own crimes than just merely on the crimes that our national enemies have committed? Thank you. Um, I think I've got maybe three things to say which sort of respond to some of the questions. And the first one is about um, the issue of alliance and leadership and I guess about, I guess to uh, maybe um, amplify what Michael said about the kind of short-term, skin-deep kind of um, use of anti-Semitism and of, and of Jewish, mobilizing Jewish fears of Muslims that's been a kind of strategy of the of the right that a lot of the British Jewish community has kind of actively participated and I suppose that that's one of the kind of I think our key tasks uh, particularly within the Jewish community of kind of of getting people to recognize the kind of short-sightedness of that of that alliance and it's well it is coming back to kind of bite the Jewish community so I would guess I, I just agree with that in practical things uh, two points um, I think in terms of the academic research that I've done and which others have done um, on kind of uh, racism and, and conviviality that it's really clear in the evidence that kind of everyday forms of positive contact um, break down prejudice much more effectively than kind of any kind of 
um, anti-prejudice education and I think the sort of work that Nissan Machine does, the also creative type of work that Open Visor does, that loads of organisations at grassroots level across Britain are just creating opportunities for people to get to know each other and I think that is the main thing that needs to be done at the moment, it's kind of it's, uh, you know, it's, very, it's very well developed in some places, very underdeveloped in others, it's very kind of uneven but what seems to most work is things that are based on not talking to each other face to face, you know, about theological differences and similarities, but side by side kind of shared concerns, whether that's shared concerns with planning problems such as, you know, a rate, uh, coded racist objections to new, you know, mosques or Jewish home extensions and Haredi communities, things like that, practical things. So, so I, I forgot to say, one problem I think is the geographic distribution, too. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about that enough. If you look at the 10 local authorities with the most Jews and the 10 local authorities with the most Muslims, there's only really, like Manchester and Hackney are the few places where Jews and Muslims actually know each other. That they mm-hmm. run. So I think we, we underestimate that, that issue. And both communities have a vision of the other that's, that's kind of geographically <coughs> and, and socioeconomically they don't interact with. And that, that is a big barrier. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's being kind of exacerbated, I think, within education, particularly the Jewish community, yeah. well, faith schools, yeah. and and fears that mean that Jewish students often go to universities that are seen as yeah. safe for the you know reasons that Danny spoke about. Um, and then just the third, last brief thing about the history, I completely uh, embraced Sue's uh, suggestion, and maybe in relation to what Danny said about prejudice, I wasn't trying to say that um, individual prejudice isn't an issue. I think that. Um, that the way to tackle um, one of the ways to tackle that prejudice is by kind of understanding these histories and kind of education on these histories is exactly the way to get at the individual um, prejudices so I can very much agree with what Daniel said about that Um, For me there's two things that uh, I think that urgently need to be done. Uh, one, I think, I think I feel very positive about. And I think we're living in a particular moment; a great deal can be achieved. And just hearing how people talk in the panel and in the audience, and which is to deal, to go out into communities, but also to deal with the. Uh, there's a great deal of willingness, I think, with people who are interested in fighting anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. A great deal of mutual understanding at this particular time that I think needs to be uh, really capitalised upon, acted upon, and dealt with in an explicit, official fashion. There's a great deal to be said for flag-waving in a positive sense, and, and, uh, and not just under the radar going out to communities, but on a national stage and an international and transnational stage, talking about racism together and campaigning so it becomes something mainstream so you can easily find someone to go and talk at St Paul's, for example. Um, and I think that there's a lot of uh, momentum there amongst people working on racism's that that could actually be easily done now. It's a question of resources and organisation. For me, I'm much less optimistic about the other side, which I think really needs to be acted upon, which is on the, in terms of policy communities across the West, uh, which is that um, in my interactions in policy communities across the West, that uh, we are thinking out of a framework of centuries of conceptualising extremism or fanaticism, as it was once known centuries ago, um, that I, there's just too many commonalities to how people spoke in the 17th century and the 21st century, which just can't be right. Um, but it's such a powerful way of thinking through about the problem of, uh, of revolution and extremism uh, through a theological frame that it, it, it's a really difficult task. And I, I don't know um, if that could actually, anything could be done about this, but I think that that would make a huge impact because when it comes down to it, 
most Islamophobia today is with concerns of uh, fear of Muslims as potential or actual terrorists. I'll just end uh, by thanking, thanking our experts and recommending <laughs> more good booksellers. <laughs> Preferably not using Amazon online, if I may suggest, but uh, more good booksellers. Um, and thank our expert panel, and thank you for, for coming, and uh, just leave you with a, a couple of thoughts. It would be it would be hugely effective if um, it might even be more the Muslim or the Jewish community that when uh, Trump arrives in Britain, that there is actually the union flag being carried by people pointing out explicitly that uh, uh, we don't discriminate on who is British and the rights of British citizens. We don't accept others uh, suggesting that that will happen uh, for British citizens going to another country such as the United States. I think that would be hugely powerful and particularly because the target group would also be those who won't be protesting, um, but may actually be, um, and not just privately, but on the internet in particular, welcoming uh, Trump and uh, his alleged values here. So I think uh, that's a little suggestion. The bigger one, with so many historians present, is that uh, it's about time we had more history and historian warriors on the internet, particularly on Twitter, countering prejudiced opinion with fact and using the fact of history as fact, doing that methodically. I don't see a lot of that. So it's not getting very far. That would be very, very powerful in the, maybe different to the normal ways of academia. Um, but that's the era we're in and will be in. And I think that would be very, very powerful and very interesting to see what impact any one of us, you, us, could have by doing that. Small bits of action by each of us are what make a difference. It's all we call for. So I hope everyone will find ways of doing their little bit to contribute. Thank you very much for coming today. That is a contribution. Thank you. Thank you.